Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's message is entitled, Conquering Your Fears with Truth. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you grew up in the early 20th century, you no doubt would have heard the name Howard Hughes. As the son of a successful oil drill tool manufacturer, he inherited his father's business in 1923 at the age of 18. Intrigued by a new industry that was taking off in Hollywood, California, Hughes began to finance and produce films. In 1926, at about the age of 21, he became a pioneer in the film business uh, when he produced a World War I epic called Hell's Angels in 1930, using expensive dogfighting sequences and uh, shooting them live, uh, planes dogfighting in the air. In, in the 1930s, Hughes uh, became a pioneer in aviation as well. He started an aircraft company and built planes, test flew them, and set a handful of flight records. He's also credited with many aviation innovations, such as retractable uh, landing gear and many others. By the mid-1940s, Hughes had become a famous billionaire, aviator, motion picture producer, and business tycoon. However, in 1946, Howard Hughes' life took a surprising turn after a terrible plane crash. He began to retreat from the public eye. For the remaining 30 years of his life, Howard Hughes literally lived in the dark as a recluse in the penthouse of various hotels. Rumors and reports circulated for decades that Hughes was terrified of being seen in public again, that he commanded his staff to wash their hands multiple times before meeting with him and even required his servants to layer their hands with paper towels before they gave him food. Uh, other stories that circulated in some reports are that if a staff member was sick, he would require them to wash their clothes or he would burn his clothes because he was so afraid of catching germs. This once pioneering inventor, Howard Hughes, died of heart failure all alone, laying in a hotel room bed, naked, in 1976. And by that time in his life, he rarely left that bed nor put on clothes because it was his germ-free zone. Secular psychiatrists have since diagnosed Howard Hughes with germ-phobia, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. However, God's Word tells us this poor man is an example of how fear can paralyze someone's life apart from the transforming power of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Isaiah chapter 41. If you forgot your Bible or need to borrow a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, one of our ushers will bring one to you. Also, I want to encourage you to take out the sermon note insert that's in your worship folder so you can follow along with me. Isaiah chapter 41. 
And as you turn there, let me uh, give you just a little bit of background on the book of Isaiah, real quick, a synopsis of what the book is about, so that we have context as we look at a few verses in chapter 41. Uh, The book of Isaiah was written between 740 and 680 B.C. by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, The time in which Isaiah ministered to God's people was another difficult season of political and spiritual decline. Uh, The northern kingdom of Israel, as you see on the map here in the blue, had already fallen to uh, the Babylonians, or excuse me, the Assyrians, because they were being punished by God. So they disobeyed God, didn't listen to the prophets that tried to call them back to walking with the Lord. And so the Lord said, all right then, here comes your spanking. He sends the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah was the only remnant of God's people still standing. Unfortunately, Judah in the south, they're in the gold there, they were also following in the footsteps of their northern brethren, disobeying the Lord, worshiping idols, and making sinful choices. And so Isaiah was dispatched to preach to the southern kingdom of Judah to try and bring them back. But unfortunately, they would not listen. And so, in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters are confrontational. They they are God speaking through the prophet, describing the consequences that he's going to dole out on the southern kingdom and why he's going to do it. And basically, what the Lord says is going to happen is, I'm going to send the Babylonians to conquer you guys. They're going to take you out of your homeland, back to their country. This is going to take place in 586 B.C., and you'll be there in time out, away from home for 70 years because of your disobedience. After this spanking and 70-year time out, the Lord says, I'm going to bring you back in 70 years, and reestablish you as a, as a nation in your homeland. And so uh, the first 39 chapters, as I mentioned a minute ago, are confrontational of this is what you did wrong, here's what's going to happen, this is what you did wrong, here's what you didn't listen to me. But then in chapter 40 through 46, the Lord shifts gears and provides words of comfort, realizing that, well, I think in his fatherly heart that the people, uh, his people in Judah had gotten the message finally after 39 chapters and that um, he wanted to encourage them and give them some hope. And so they were to be conquered by Babylon. And in fact, what's interesting is that when Isaiah writes this book, the Babylonian conquest and then exile is still a hundred years away. Thus, the people of Judah were like anxious children who knew their spanking was coming, and it was just killing them in, with the anticipation, you know? It's kind of like a, maybe like a patient that has to go to the dentist, and you're really nervous and fearful because you know it's going to hurt, and it's coming. I just want to get it over with, but it was still 100 years out. And so the Lord tries to calm their nerves by giving two generations some encouragement. There was first the current generation that had sinned and disobeyed, and then there was the next generation that would rise up 
once they were in Babylon. And that second generation would come back to build again. And so Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 10, is the Lord promising his anxious people that even though there are going to be difficult days ahead, right in front of you, he still loves them, will be with them, and has good in store for them. Thus, our big idea for today is this. God's promises enable us to move from faithless fear to fearless faith. God's promises enable us to move from faithless fear to fearless faith. The dictionary defines fear as a distressing emotion aroused by impending danger, evil, or pain, regardless of whether the threat is real or imagined. Fear has several synonyms in the scripture. It's uh, worry, uh, anxiety, concern. In biblical counseling circles, fear is called a secondary emotion or a dashboard emotion because it indicates there is something going on under the hood in our hearts when fear shows up. Thus, let me give you three common causes of fear. There's always one of the, almost always one of these causes behind fear. Uh, there are three common idols in the heart that create a fear response when they are threatened. The majority of the time we are anxious or afraid because we fear losing one of these three things. The first is the loss of comfort. The loss of comfort. We idolize comfort when we believe in our hearts that life only has meaning or worth so long as we have a certain pleasure, ease, safety, or security. It could be the comfort of predictability, just knowing what's going to happen next and things never changing. It could be the comfort of having the same friends for the rest of your life, never having to meet anybody new or lose anybody in your life. It could be having the same career or the same standard of living or good health. Thus, when comfort is threatened, those who worship it become afraid. The next common cause of fear is the loss of control. The loss of control. We idolize control when we believe in our hearts that life only has meaning or purpose or is worth living so long as I am sovereign over my life. Control worshipers use certainty and self-discipline and uh, standards to minimize the unexpected. Thus, when structure, plans, and predictability and order are threatened, they become anxious and try to get control back. The third common cause of fear is the loss of approval. We idolize approval when we believe in our hearts that life is only worth living or has meaning so long as we are loved and respected and appreciated by certain people. Approval worshipers use money and gifts and flattery and deception and people-pleasing and over-commitment and over-promising to gain or maintain the affections of those that they crave 
approval from. Thus, when their perceived acceptance is threatened, they worry. So we have the loss of comfort, the loss of control, or the loss of approval. Those are at least three common causes of fear. These, these idols are the sin beneath the sin of worry and anxiety and fear. And diagnosing them in your heart is a first and biggest step to take to get free from fear. And you can diagnose them by simply asking yourself, doing some self-examination, by asking yourself a couple questions like, what do I worry or think about most? Or what do I fear losing if the danger I perceive is real? Or another diagnostic question would be, what am I willing to sin for in order to protect it? Questions like that can help you diagnose what your heart is really worshiping. Now, the promises that are made in Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10, have helped countless saints, including myself, throughout the centuries to conquer fears. And with that, I want to invite you to follow along with me as I read these three verses. The Lord says through Isaiah, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I think there are three truths that the Lord says through Isaiah here in these three verses. Here's the first one. Christ followers are the Lord's unworthy possession. Christ followers are the Lord's unworthy possession. He says, if Jesus, he says, I've chosen you, which means for us in the, in the church age, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the New Testament makes it clear that you did not choose him. He chose you. He was in the position of decision-making and power and authority, not us. This is significant because if you know Jesus, it's because he wanted you in his family. This reminds me of some of the scary experiences that I had in PE class when I was in junior high school. When the weather was nice in central Illinois where I grew up, we would often play kickball outside during PE class. Our teacher would choose two captains, maybe you had a similar experience, and then he would tell the captains to pick their teams from the remaining lineup of suspects against the school wall. And what usually happened is the first round draft picks, the best athletes in the class, went one and two to those two different teams. And then they whispered in the ear of the captains, pick this one, yeah, that's right, that's right. And they just went one by one. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 not that one. No, no, no. She stinks, man. Don't get it. Get him, you know. And, and it just went for 10 minutes real quick as the class got split up into two different teams. Both captains vying to stack their teams for kickball superiority. Sometimes a captain would choose a classmate but then change their mind as a classmate was just a few feet off the wall. That was embarrassing because the, the whispering would be happening from the first round draft pick. No, not that one. So then the, the child would, would oh, me, oh, me, oh. Oh, oh, not me. Oh, back to the wall. You know, and uh, that happened to me a few times. Usually I went around the middle of the class, thankfully. I guess that means I was average. But, um, of course, the goal was not to be the last one standing. You didn't want that to happen. Because that would mean, at least in junior high terms, that you were the nerdiest, ugliest, least athletic kid in the class or the weakest link on the team. And you didn't want to be consistently the last one picked, right? Well, thankfully, that's not how Jesus chooses his team. Aren't you glad? See, he chooses anyone who's willing to repent of their sins and by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone, to trust him for salvation. And it doesn't matter what they look like or where they are from or what they've done or how well they can kick the ball or whether they can catch it or throw it. If Jesus chooses you, he promises he won't ever cast you off or send you back. We see that here in verse 9. I have not cast you off, he says. So the Lord not only chooses differently than the world does, he keeps differently. Meaning that once he's got you, he promises never to send you back. He's not going to save his receipt or call in a warranty claim and go, you know, this isn't working out so well. You're not turning out the way I hope. I think I want to send you back and see if I can trade in and get another one. He doesn't claim a lemon law or something like that. Spurgeon shares this encouraging reminder uh, in his commentary on verse 9. Spurgeon says, our Savior is no fickle lover. He does not feel enchanted for a while with some gleams of beauty from his church's eye and then afterwards reject her because of her unfaithfulness. Isn't it good that he doesn't do that? So how do we walk in the truth and apply verses 8 and 9? Here's, here's one application that comes to mind for you. Perhaps the Spirit will give you another one personally for you, but... One that came to mind for me was, thank him for choosing you. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's because he chose to reveal himself to you. And you never have to worry about losing your relationship with him. It's not something you have to fret or worry about. It means even if it looks like you're about to lose everything else, the most important thing you'll never lose is him. And in fact, God's word would say, even if you lost everything else, like say Job, for example, Job's conclusion at the end of his book was, I still have the Lord. And that's worth a lot. 
It means that if you have a bad day, week, month, or year like the people of Judah did, in which you maybe try to let go of him because maybe you're tired of him or he's not doing what you think he should be doing, it says here in verse 9 that he will never let go of you. Nobody else loves like that. So thank him for choosing you because he didn't have to. So Christ followers are the Lord's unworthy possession. We're not worthy of being chosen to be on his team. Here's number two. Christ followers are promised his unescapable presence. They're promised his unescapable presence. In verse 10, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. So he commands us not to fear, and then he gives at least a partial reason why. Why? Why should I not fear, Lord? Because I'm with you. In other words, that's the biggest game changer you'll ever, ever need. I'm with you. Now, before we go any further, it's worth mentioning that the Bible references, in a very general sense, two different types of fear. Uh, letter A on your outline is this. There's helpful fear. Examples of this would be the fear of God, as was talked about in the book of Proverbs, a series that we just finished up. The fear of God should keep us humble and holy and dependent on him. That's a good kind of fear. Uh, there's the fear of danger that can keep us from doing foolish things that would cause us unnecessary harm. Uh, you know, like, for example, when I was growing up in the Midwest, when a severe thunderstorm came through and there was a rotation uh, in the storm, tornado warnings went off, and we went and took cover in the basement out of a healthy fear and respect for a tornado and what it could do. Um, Another example would be, naturally, we don't play outside in the middle of a lightning storm because we fear getting shocked. We don't run out in front of traffic uh, because we fear getting hit. Those, that's good fear. It, it, it keeps us in boundaries. It keeps us in check. Fear can be good if it makes us responsible and moves us closer to the Lord. Now, the other type of fear, letter B, that the scriptures talk about is sinful fear. The Bible tells us not to fear things like people, for example. Uh, Jesus rebuked his disciples for being afraid before he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I know what you might be thinking is, man, Pastor Kerry, you just said that being afraid of a storm was a good thing because it can keep you from dying or getting shocked. Yes, but, in Mark chapter 4, on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus rebuked the disciples for being fearful because he was with them in the storm. And I think Jesus was irritated in the text because he felt, if I'm with you in the storm, you should no longer fear. He told his father, followers, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount to not be anxious about their lives and instead to seek first the kingdom of God. Thus, if we fear and we worry and we're anxious, we're sinning because Jesus said, don't do it. Peter denied Christ after his crucifixion because he feared people. 
And he had to be restored and reconciled with the Lord after the resurrection in John 21. Sinful fear causes us to doubt God, to make foolish choices, and to think unbiblically. But why? You know, there's more to this, and I've wrestled with this. Why does the Lord want us to, why does he not want us to be anxious? Excuse me. Well, besides the fact that anxiety is not good for us, of course, we all know the effects that anxiety can take in our bodies. But another reason the Lord does not want us to fear is that fear is unbelief wrapped in a sin that most Christians find acceptable. I'm going to say that again. Fear is unbelief wrapped up in a sin that most Christians find acceptable. But at the root of it is unbelief. And more often than not, the the Lord takes offense at unbelief. There's multiple examples in the scriptures where he's, he's irritated at times by the unbelief of the disciples or his people. And I can just say transparently, after all my years of studying the scriptures and reading books on this topic to help myself and to help myself grow as a counselor, but also to help my walk with the Lord, um, and I've counseled others that struggle with anxiety, and I fought my own battle with it, I think I can say with certainty that a majority of our fear is sinful, not helpful. Yes, there are medical conditions and side effects from certain medications that can make someone struggle with anxiety. I'm aware of those. However, those are rare, very rare. And I think we have to be careful that we don't make exceptions or rarities the norm because we don't want to take responsibility for our sin. So, having said that, there's helpful fear and then there's sinful fear. What do we do with verse 10? When the Lord says, fear not, for I am with you. Uh, Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Well, here's an application that comes to mind. Trust that he's with you even when you don't feel it. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. There are times I I struggle to believe God is with me because I don't feel him with me or see him working around me. In fact, uh, we're not alone. You might remember from my Psalm series last year that uh, David struggled with this. I think it's in Psalm 25 or Psalm 27 where David accuses the Lord of playing hide and seek. Lord, I am seeking your face. Stop hiding from me. And I mentioned back in that series that there are times where it will feel as though the Lord has left you, but he is not. The only thing that's changed is our feelings. Sometimes we are afraid because we wrongly assume that when danger comes, it's because the Lord has left. But that's not true. Don't forget when I set up the context of these verses that Isaiah was writing these words of encouragement before the Lord was about to dismantle the rest of Judah and ship them off to Babylon in a hundred years. So, so, so there was not 
a season of blessing and prosperity and fruitfulness and all that coming. There was rough times coming. And yet the Lord says, fear not, I will be with you through it. Don't be dismayed. I am with you. I will get you through this consequence that you've earned. (laughs) This means that if the Lord gives you the opportunity to share the gospel with a neighbor, instead of being afraid, you should remember, fear not, I am with you. It means that if your health is failing, your finances are falling apart, or you just lost your job, you should read verse 10 out loud all the way to the doctor's office, the bank, or your next job interview. Fear not, for I am with you. God's promises, like these here, enable us to move from faithless fear to fearless faith. Number three, here's the third thing that the Lord says through Isaiah to us. Christ followers are promised his unlimited power. Christ followers are promised his unlimited power. He says in verse 10, I will strengthen you. What's implied is that they're going to get weary. They're going to get tired. They're going to reach the end of their human strength. Inability. And throughout the scriptures, many of the Lord's people found themselves in situations that required more power than they had to give. In Psalm 138, for example, uh, I was uh, looking this up last night, and I, I can't say that I've ever seen this before, but it's an interesting turn of phrase. In Psalm 138, David says, I cried out to the Lord, and my strength of soul was renewed. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.16 for the believers in Ephesus that they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. So the Lord knows that we are weak. The Lord knows that we are made from dust. He knows that we have finite energy and strength. I know it's hard to believe this, but from my teens until I was about 40, I would often lift weights after playing basketball. I know many of you were already noticing that, and you can see the effects of my many years in the weight room, but one of the things that I would do often with the guys in the weight room is called bench press. Uh, bench press is focuses on the pectoral muscles, and it's often the number one weight exercise that dudes want to do. Shouldn't be any shock, ladies, I know. Weightlifters in weight rooms across America know that if you're going to increase the strength and size of your pectoral muscles, you have to overload that muscle group with weight. Now, because of how bench pressing works, There is an understand etiquette in all weight rooms, and I've tested this in my own research because I was in a health club in Texas, then I was in a health club in Illinois, and then in a health club in Indiana. All three states, it works like this. If you're bench pressing, you're about to, and you're gonna do some heavy weight, you can ask another guy who you don't know, he's a complete stranger, hey man, can I get a spot? And it's understood, at least in those three states, that that guy has to stop what he's doing to come help me lift the heavy weight. 
And so it works like you see in the picture here. The spotter stands behind the, the guy that's on the bench, and basically the purpose of the spotter is to protect you from hurting yourself, to push you further than you would typically go on your own, and to give you additional strength as needed to keep you from quitting. So in some cases, if I work, was working out alone, I'd have a stranger standing over me going, come on, man, you can do it, come on, man. Oh, that's all you got? Let's go. Come on, come on. It's just an odd thing. Don't know the guy, never seen him before, but he's spotting for me. Of course, other times I would go to the weight room with a friend, and it was okay, and he would yell even more at me. And then he would take his turn, and I would yell back. So, but here's, here's what's interesting. The Lord knows that in order for us to get stronger, he has to overload us with weight. He has to protect us from hurting ourselves, and he has to push us further than we would typically go on our own. And then he always, always gives us additional strength when needed. He's like a spotter. In his classic devotion book, Morning and Evening, Charles Spurgeon boldly and incisively dismantles any doubts that we might have about the Lord's ability or desire to help us. He writes this, the same God who directs the earth in its orbit, who feeds the burning furnace of the sun and trims the lamps of heaven has promised to supply you with daily strength. Will he who created the world grow weary? Of course, the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. Will he who hangs the world upon nothing be able to support his children? No. Will he be unfaithful to his word for lack of power? No. How can he fail you? When he has put such a faithful promise on record here in Isaiah 41, will you for a moment indulge the thought that he has outpromised himself or gone beyond his power to fulfill? No. Of course not. By the way, that's a good spot for an amen if you needed to hear that from Charles Spurgeon. It's okay to amen another preacher. From, from the 19th century who's with the Lord and is famously called the Prince of Preachers. It's okay to amen Charles Spurgeon. So how do we apply this? Tap into his strength when yours is gone. Now that sounds like, well, duh, but you'd be surprised at how few people actually do that. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you get on your face in your bedroom or your closet, and you say, Lord, I realize once again that I am weak and you are strong. Please help me through this, and please, by the way, forgive me for trying to do this on my own. I can't do this without you, Lord. And then you get up by faith, you open God's word, and you read Isaiah 41.10 out loud repeatedly until it sinks in. And then you watch the Lord work. Tap into his strength when yours is gone. 
well. Many 21st century Christ followers have never heard the name William Cowper, but many of us have sung at least one of his hymns. In addition to being an accomplished poet, Cowper wrote at least 68 classic church hymns, including God Moves in a Mysterious Way, Oh, for a Closer Walk with God, and There is a Fountain. He also co-wrote several more hymns, a couple hundred more, with his best friend and minister, John Newton. Newton and Cowper are most famous for writing Amazing Grace together. What many people don't know about William Cowper is that this gifted songwriter spent most of his life battling a crippling anxiety and depression. While growing up in an upper-class family during the mid-1700s near London, England, William Cowper's father tried to uh, get him to pursue a law career. But this didn't interest him, so his well-connected father helped him get a job working for the British government at about the age of 28. Four years after he got his first job working for the British government, Cowper was recommended for a promotion that would require him to interview in front of Parliament. Most people desiring to climb the career ladder might be a little nervous about a public interview, but you guys, including myself, we would get over it or get through it, but not Cowper. He was so terrified of having to interview in public in front of a large group for a promotion that one week before his appointment to interview, he tried to commit suicide three times in the same day. But the Lord providentially prevented him from succeeding. I don't have time to go into the details, but um, in his biography, it's fascinating to read. He, I'll, just, I'll give you a quick synopsis of how that day went down. He was so worried, so stressed out, so depressed, he went down to a wharf to try and drown himself, but the water level was too low. So then he went and he bought some laudanum, which was a popular medication in those days, and he tried to overdose on it, but he couldn't get his fingers to stop shaking so he could take the pills. Well, after that didn't work, he tried to hang himself with a garter in his room and fell three times. Here's a guy who's probably thinking, man, I can't even get this right, you know? Well, the Lord providentially prevented him from succeeding, but not long after this, Cowper was committed to St. Alban's insane asylum and placed under the care of Dr. Nathaniel Cotton. Once again, the Lord was providentially at work behind the scenes in his life because Dr. Cotton was a born-again Christian. And he ended up playing a role in bringing William Cowper to faith in Jesus Christ. After being released from the asylum a couple years later, Cowper stayed with a friend's family so he wouldn't have to fight his battle with anxiety and depression alone. And through this family, the Lord once again was working and moving chess pieces providentially. And the, the husband of the family dies 
the family's minister hears about it and comes to their home to visit them. And the minister is John Newton. They strike up a friendship, Newton and Cowper, and ended up being best friends for the next 30 years. Newton consistently encouraged Cowper with God's promises and his knowledge of the scriptures and mentored him in the faith. And then as songwriting partners, Newton basically said, hey, we ought to write a hymnal. This is radical back then. Imagine they, they decided they wanted to write a hymn book together where Cowper's gift for poetry and lyrics combined with Newton's knowledge of the scriptures and doctrine, they wanted to write new worship songs for the church. I would imagine there was a revolt that probably took place. Maybe they didn't have some drums or something too, but, but all that to say, they wrote a hymn book called the Only Hymn Book. Sorry, Olney is how you say it. It was named after the church or the community where they ministered together. Why am I telling you about Cowper? Well, there's at least two things that we can take away from William Cowper's life. First, even people that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ can struggle with fear and anxiety. Thus, being born again does not exempt us from the side effect of the fall. A survey of William Cowper's poetry and songs revealed that he not only struggled deeply with anxiety, but... He also loved the Lord, too. And he even writes in his poetry, many times he felt the Lord had left him for certain seasons and abandoned him. Uh, the second thing I think we can learn from William Cowper is that he walked through his anxiety and fears with the Lord. See, Cowper knew it wasn't God's will that he be paralyzed by anxiety, so he didn't make excuses for it. He, he was never content or satisfied to live in fear. He was always battling it, always going to the Lord, going to the Word, spending time in prayer, writing worship songs to help his soul, to remind him of the truths of God's Word. And as a result, it brought him closer to the Lord out of desperation, which allowed him to live a flawed, definitely flawed, but faithful and fruitful life. And Cowper, this broken, flawed man who couldn't even kill himself successfully, ends up being used by God to write hymns that bless the church. So a personal relationship with Jesus Christ made William Cowper's struggle with anxiety life-giving as opposed to life-taking, as we saw with Howard Hughes at the beginning of our time together. Hughes struggled apart from Jesus with anxiety and fear. Cowper struggled with Jesus, and both had completely different lives. So, God's promises enable us to move from faithless fear to fearless faith. Let's close in prayer, and I want to ask the Lord to help any of you that are struggling with fear. I want to ask the Lord to help you turn your fear into fearless faith. Heavenly Father, thank you for these comforting words in Isaiah 41. 
Thank you, Lord, that we are able to get a glimpse of your heart and that the people of Judah totally, totally, completely earned what they had coming to them. It was going to be scary. It was going to be devastating. It was going to be painful to have their nation dismantled and to be transplanted to another country for 70 years. Yet, we get a glimpse of your heart, Lord, that although you are holy and just and that you are committed to punishing sin, you also are loving and gracious and compassionate. And you encourage your people. You encourage them that you would be with them and that you would get them through that painful season. Lord, I want to pray for anyone right now that's listening online or maybe here today that's going through a painful season. Would you please cause these words in Isaiah 41 to sink deep into their hearts? Father, please, would you help change their heart and their thinking with the words that you wrote through Isaiah? Lord, if there is an idol of comfort or control or approval that they have in the recesses of their heart, would you please reveal it, help them to see it, to repent of that, and to turn it over to you. Thank you, Lord, that those who repent of the idols of control and comfort and and, and approval are free. They are set free from the burdens that those idols bring. Lord, I pray too that for those that are going through a difficult time right now, maybe they're waiting on you to provide a job or provide for finances or provide healing or they're facing daunting circumstances. Lord, please, would you come through in ways that only you can? Would you move like you did in William Cowper's life, move mysteriously and providentially for good. And Lord, would you do it in demonstrable ways that they can see, so they can praise you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us first. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.